Osiris. We want to thank every single one of you guys who's been calling and requesting this next song for so long. And uh, I think we're done now, but you guys kept us number one on Modern Rock Charts for 11 weeks straight. So thank you. And if you know the words of this next song, sing along. It's been 22 years since my own worst enemy exploded on the scene and became a permanent part of America's cultural fabric. The song that would not die made Lit part of the last wave of rock stars before the musical landscape shifted and rock and roll became more of a niche market. Lit did not parlay the song into a string of similar blockbusters. Nobody could. Consequently, they never quite became a household name, but my own worst enemy absolutely has. Take a look back at the other songs that occupied the top spot on Billboard's modern rock chart in 1999. How often do you hear, say, The Chemicals Between Us by Bush or Rearranged by Limp Bizkit today? Are they a constant presence on rock radio, at karaoke, in cover band sets, or in video games in 2021? No, but my own worst enemy definitely is. But the question is, why? When so many hits by Lit's contemporaries have long since fallen by the wayside, what is it that keeps my own worst enemy cruising down the highway in a 63 sedan DeVille at an unlawful speed with the windows down and the radio blasting? Is it the riff? The groove? The lyrics? They're all outrageously catchy, giving the track more hooks than a fishing vest. Is it Gen X nostalgia for a song that defined the spirit of an era? Or does the tune just tap into some deep craving for that ideal combination of crunch, flow, and unadulterated fun? The answer is yes to all of the above, but that's still only a part of it. By touching base with experts in these and other areas, we can at least begin to wrap our brains around the phenomenon that my own worst enemy has become. Roundhill Music presents My Own Worst Enemy. Let's start with the germ of the song the indelible guitar riff that Jeremy Popoff first hammered out in the band's rehearsal space back in 1998. When I learned how to play guitar, I, I taught myself how to play opening riffs. So it was more than a feeling, ding, 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 you know, or Def Leppard, Wasted, or Smoke on the Water, or Crazy Train. All of those iconic songs started with a riff, and a memorable riff that a kid would go, oh, I want to learn how to play that. And so that was kind of always where my mindset was, was I wanted to, you know, eventually be in that club of riffs that would stand the test of time and hopefully resonate 30, 40 years later when you launch into it. There's a moment when you go, this is a badass riff, but there's another moment when the guitar part locks with a counter melody that AJ's singing and it rubs. We're always, we call it the rub, but we're always looking for a little rub where the notes make your ear perk up a little bit when they go together, you know. Lit bassist. Kevin Baldus. The intro riff is 
infectious. You know, it's it grabs your attention right out of the gate. It's not just a basic chord riff. It's an octave riff going over and over and over, and it's etching into your brain from the get-go. Like, what? Whoa, what is that? Matt Messer signed Lit to an EMI publishing deal before the song was even written. It starts with the guitar part. That's got to be the most memorable riff of the era. And it's just an anthem. I mean, just seeing the reaction back then of people when the song was big at radio and going to shows, as soon as that riff starts, as soon as Jeremy hits that first note, the place just explodes. Everybody's going crazy. With The Offspring, Kevin Noodles Wasserman did more than almost any other guitarist to bust out Orange County punk to the musical mainstream. And back in the day, The Offspring took Lit out on tour. Yeah, I think Ozzy said it best. He says, I don't want to come up with a guitar riff that impresses guitar players. I want to come up with a guitar riff that makes somebody else want to learn how to play guitar. And I would say that that riff is the perfect example of that. How do you play that? You know, technically, I mean, it's kind of hard to get the rhythm right on that, you know, and the slide up and everything, you know, my own worst enemy, but it's easier to play than, you know, a lot of what Metallica comes up with, for example. But it makes you want to learn how to play it. You know, I learned how to play it. You know, it was a fun riff for sure. You don't fuck with like smoke on the water. You know, smoke on the water is what it is. It's just the riff, you know, Iron Man. You don't want to overcomplicate it. So I think a lot of times a simple, tangible, just a, one that hits you in the gut rather than something you overthink, that can be a great riff. Ben Osmondson is the bassist for Zebrahead, who were shoulder to shoulder with Lit in the L.A. club scene of the late 90s. Beavis and Butthead always wins. Like the simpler, the easier to digest, the better off you are. And that riff is really simple and cool. Butch Walker's jaw-dropping production resume includes Lit's 2012 album, The View from the Bottom. It's an immediate guitar riff right from the top. Like the first time you hear the first like five notes of Sweet Child of Mine. When you're at a party and you hear, everybody goes, ah, fuck. You know, it's a reactionary riff. And even though this one is even more simple, two notes, that is enough to make people go, oh, oh, holy shit, something's happening. There's a huge reaction right when you hear it. Like, you know, when you hear the beginning of My Sharona, you know immediately what it is. It's definitive. It's badass. It makes you move. Same thing. Let's just go ahead and say it, more so now than even 20 years ago, we have the attention span of a fucking squirrel as society. So, like, if you don't get their attention right away and keep it for three minutes, I mean, there's songs that are a minute and a half now all over Spotify that are hits. And it's like, that's very telling of where we're at. Hit songwriter Sam Hollander has written for everybody from Blink-182 to Carole King. And he holds the song up as a model of craftsmanship. The riff was a massive hook. Obviously, it was a time when guitar riffs sort of could do that thing. But this one specifically, like from the bar that it drops, you you know, you want to hear that reintro come back in. So that's what they did amazing is instead of a post-chorus, they went right to the riff. And the riff is as big a hook as anything in the song, if not the biggest part. So brilliantly executed in that way. As chair of the songwriting department at Berklee College of Music, a veteran recording artist, and a hit songwriter herself, Bonnie Hayes has an ideal vantage point on what makes a tune tick. 
Actually, this has two guitar hooks, right? If you really start breaking down like hit songs over the years, this is present in many, many really popular hit songs where there's a melody or a part that's really identifiable, that's copyrightable, that underlies the vocal melody. So that that thing is basically like a second melody, what we call a second melody, which is a sort of a counterpoint to na 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 And you have this great thing going on that between those two parts. It's like Bach, basically. You know, if I wrote out the rhythmic interplay between those two things, you'd be tripping, you know? It's very complex. And what it does is it makes our minds really get interested in the way that those two patterns are interacting with each other, right? And then they have this other guitar hook, the leading tone thing that's just going up from the major seven to the one in this like 16th note pattern. When the vocal isn't happening, that happens with the rhythm guitar hook. So you have an overlay of two guitar hooks at the same time, which is what happens at the beginning. It starts with the lead guitar hook, and then the rhythm guitar hook comes in underneath it. So we start with one thing, and we're like, okay, as soon as we get that, the second hook comes in, and now we have to listen to it in relation to something else. Look at the pattern building here. I mean, it absolutely, you never get a chance to get bored. It just keeps moving into the next sort of, the next set of overlapping patterns. Have a second hook, you know? It really is important in hit songwriting. You have to do a lot more work if you don't have one. To this day, my own worst enemy remains a staple of cover bands all over America. Phil Smith plays it all the time with his appropriately titled group, The 90s Band, who have the Long Island beach party scene on lockdown. It opens up with like an all-time riff. It is the attack and the conviction of the notes, the riffs. That's not a guitar part that's played half-assed. That guitar part comes in it's hit hard. It's hit with conviction. John Booker played with indie rockers I Was Totally Destroying It, but is also the guitarist with 120 Minutes, one of the most successful cover bands on the East Coast. My Own Worst Enemy is a standard for them, too, and the riff is an iconic one. It is, you know, as far as what the guitar is doing, incredibly simple, which is awesome. That's probably why it works so well, in a way, is that the melody is strong and impressive in the choruses, especially. But what the guitars are doing are so minimal and so straightforward. And just the rhythm section is just holding it in that lock, that bounciness, too. It works, man. Bruce Floor signed Lit to RCA Records and helped get Enemy on the radio. All these years later, he is still struck by the primal power of Jeremy's guitar. That riff comes on and you're just like, oh, fuck, what an anthem, you know? But for all that, without some killer lyrics to wrap around, even the greatest riff is just a glorified ringtone. Fortunately for Jeremy, the lyrics his brother AJ came up with for My Own Worst Enemy managed to be unique and completely relatable at the same time. They throw the idea of rhyming right out the window from the start, but they flow so organically that you don't even notice. 
And instead of explaining how he feels about the scenario that unfolds in the song, AJ just paints the picture and lets you figure it out for yourself. Fortunately, the story is so universal that almost everyone who hears it can find a connection. AJ Popoff. My own worst enemy. It's, it's something like any college kid, anybody in their you know, late teens, early 20s could have written that down. We're all our own worst enemy one time or another on a regular basis. That's what it feels like. You know, it's like I kicked my ass. I went out and like I kicked the living shit out of me. I really, I physically feel like shit mentally. I feel guilty. I may have said something and I don't remember what it was, but it was probably not that cool. You know, regret, but at the same time, not that much, not too much where I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> I feel like it's something we can all relate to. It's, it's really just about a little bit of regret. Uh, and like I said before, waking up to not knowing how out of hand you got the night before, uh, but feeling a little bit guilty and not really knowing and that sort of that anxiety that you feel. But at the same time, like you're going to do it again. Can, can we just get past this uncomfortable moment? To me, it feels like the morning after. It's an apology at a celebration all in one. And it's sort of acknowledging that you fucked up, but not saying you're never going to fuck up again. Sorry, not sorry. It's not even that. It's not even a sorry, not sorry. Just more of like, uh, you know, we'll get through this, you know, feels like an anthem when you hear it. And it's relatable anthem because everybody has some regret and everybody wakes up going, ah, fuck. It's just the ah, fuck anthem. You know, (laughs) part of the reason so many people are able to connect with my own worst enemy might be the fact that it's coming from a place of complete honesty. The story that unfolds could easily have been a page out of the band's journal. The song content is true. We were rock and rollers. We were into a certain kind of partying. We weren't the guys doing beer bongs and smoking weed at a house party. We were the guys getting poker parties together, real money on the table, and we wanted to be that so bad, you know, in a way... We really gravitated towards that lifestyle, but part of that was drinking, you know, and a lot of it. And people get drunk and they say stupid things and they do stupid things. Car is in the front yard. Yep, that's happened. Came in through the window. That's happened. Leaving a cigarette lit in the ashtray. That's, dude, all this stuff happened. When the song was written, these were all things that we pulled from because we were doing it every weekend, you know, and... Typically, a phone call is going to be made the next day, dude, or sweetheart, I'm sorry I said that, or dude. You know, in our case, Lit has had its fair share of huge arguments, and we still do, you know, and sometimes they're alcohol-fueled, you know, because certain fights that happen wouldn't happen if everybody was just sober, you know. Lit's former manager, Ruta Sepetis, saw the band through the lean times, the crazy times, and beyond. Everything they're writing about, it's not manufactured because, yeah, even if it sounds outlandish, they're writing from their own personal experience and that's authenticity. And when people hear that, I think so many people can relate to that. Oh, wow. What did I do last night? And oh, can I erase that? That authenticity, that's what endures. That's what makes a song go from just a song to become someone's personal anthem where they actually will take ownership of it and say, this is my song. I thought the lyric reeked of honesty. I can call bullshit on something a mile away and maybe two thirds of the time I'm right, but I can tell when something feels written or when something really feels just organically truthful to, you know, the narrative. 
it sort of dripped in some sort of honesty where I was like, man, this dude, like I could really see his life through the song and I could connect it to mine and any of my sort of high school uh, failings. And I was riveted, man. The topic is both punk and was popular. Like think about Blink and all those like, what's my age again? Those songs about just not being able to get it together, you know? And it's sort of funny, but also kind of sad and self-deprecating and, you know, getting in trouble by being an idiot. Music journalist Stephen Hyden. In a way, it unfolds like a lot of country songs do. It's just a person talking about their life and all the things that they've done wrong and taking responsibility for it in the chorus in a way that is equally angsty and funny. It's a song that I think doesn't take itself too seriously. You're not going to get depressed by it, but it also is a song that is acknowledging all the ways that I think all of us feel about ourselves at some point. You know, it's a song about self-hatred, you know, and and I think self-hatred is a common malady affecting probably everyone on the planet, you know? So I think that combination of like relatable pathos and like self-deprecating humor, it just works really well. And it's something that like you hear for the first time and you understand it immediately. And it's catchy and durable enough for you to hear it many, many times before you get sick of it. The verse is super catchy. It's funny. Can we forget about the things to say when I was drunk? I didn't mean to call you that. You know, that's funny. But at the same time, it's a, an apology. So you're like, you're drawn in and you want to hear what he's got to say next. They got the ultimate first line to a song about this. That's the ultimate first line. You didn't like go soft and like make people wonder what's going on till the minute 30 mark when they're out chasing a squirrel. So you, you kept them, but also you got right to the chorus. The chorus happens like after like 30 seconds of the song being in play. That's huge. Part of the lyric's beauty is the way it defies basic songwriting rules while still touching on a completely familiar feeling. There is no rhyming in this song. You know, you can't even believe it because it's so well-written. You don't notice it. He rhymes me with enemy. I wouldn't call it a rhyme. It's an assonance, you know. But, um, but basically, that's it. There's no rhyming, which is just incredibly rare. But the thing I noticed first was the title placement. The title only appears twice in the song and not until the second verse. And then it appears at the end when we overlay that second verse over the chorus chords and arrangement, right? That's the only place it happens. Um, So I love that they did that. That is daring title placement. And it's very punky too. It's like, do I have to say it over and over again? Or will two times be enough? Right? The subtext of it is so like, oh my God, if you can't remember it after I say it twice, give up, you know? So we get through a whole verse and chorus without kind of being able to detect what the song, what the point of the song is, right? But it somehow doesn't matter because it's such a pleasure to listen to it, you know? Media research consultant Jay Nackless follows the through line that connects listeners to the song to this day. Why did it resonate with young people initially? That's part of it. This is a song that's like, whoa, I'm going to go out and get drunk and I'm going to party. And, and why do people react to it in bars today? Well, the same reason. And now you have all these different things that are in play that weren't in play then, too, that can really boost it. Part of it is nostalgia, and then part of it is a resurgence. Let's dig down deeper, though. 
Beneath all the riffs, the lyrics, and the other top-level attractions, my own worst enemy communicates on the most primal and essential level, with the engine that's driven every great rock and roll tune since day one, the beat. To this day, whenever that big bouncing groove leaps out of the track, people jump. The bounce thing, right? Like, it's got that perfect tempo. It's on the fast side of mid, you know? It's right in the sweet spot tempo-wise. If you ever been on a big trampoline, you hit the trampoline and then you kind of float for a second. And then you come down, you hit it again, you spring up. And that's the punch. There's almost like this, like the air leaves for like these little in between, like there's this pocket of space. It's like being between waves, right? You, you kind of like you go up and then, and then up here comes the next one. And it creates this, this bouncy feeling. That's why people jump to rock music and, and certain songs. Like I would have to imagine somebody was in the room saying, these things all have to hit just right or it's not gonna work. And it worked. We've looked at some of the ingredients that went into the song, but what really made My Own Worst Enemy such a huge, time-defying hit? When a song becomes evergreen, how much of that has to do with what the artist puts into it as opposed to what happens once it's out there in the world. My Own Worst Enemy is such an incredible study in the combining of energies and also the anatomy of a hit. What does it take to write a hit? But then, what does it take to write a hit that endures? Why does a song endure? Well, I think anybody that's worked in the business knows that there's so many different elements that go into a song being a hit. Obviously, the song is number one. Timing and luck and being in the right environment with the right people, all those things come into play. Are you a priority at the label? Are they excited about it? Are they focused on it? And not just one person, but is radio hearing it? Is marketing getting it? Are the heads of the, the company, do they have some other agenda where they're, oh, no, 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 this is the band we're pushing and not that band. There's so many elements. We all have records that we love where you're like, man, I can't believe this record wasn't, wasn't huge. Timing, luck, all those things come into play. And they hit on all of it. It was perfect storm. They were at a label that was looking for success in the rock world. They had a, an obviously undeniable song. And the speed at which it happened is something that I don't know that I ever really never experienced that. It seemed like they were in the studio one week and it seemed like two weeks later we were hearing it on K-Rock and that was it off to the races. There's so many millions of like good bands and great songwriters. And it's like, how did you get in the spot where the right person heard it? That right person heard it and pushed it to the right person. And then all of a sudden, some record label believed in it. And then some radio station believed in it. And it's like, there's so much luck involved. Luck may be essential to having a hit song. But to craft one that lasts, you need something more. You need the kind of master craftsmanship that Lit built in those 10 long years of slogging and shedding that led up to my own worst enemy. Without that the song could never have happened. What it means is that when the lightning comes, you're ready. You're not going to get in the way. 
You're not going to start overthinking it, putting all these fancy chords in it, like writing extra lines of lyric that don't need to be in there. You're not going to do the things that inexperienced songwriters do when they get a great idea. And they ruin the song when they do it. People who are used to writing songs know that when lightning happens, when you get an idea like that and guys are playing, messing around in a riff and it comes together, you get out of the way, but your technique is still there, right? Mastery is always about this. It's always about building skills. Most people who are playing in bands, who are out playing for people who are making records, they're building those skills. They're teaching themselves how to get better, how to get out of the way when a great idea comes down the pike, you know? They couldn't have had this hit record without the suffering that preceded it. (laughs) You can't write those songs on that record and not have a healthy knowledge of pop music. These guys were listening to, I'm sure, to Joe Jackson and all this other really cool stuff. Elvis Costello, anything of that era, maybe Weller to some extent. Like, their writing was crafty, man. Like, that's like an art. And that's really the trick, is which songs will have staying power and which ones will not. You can make billions if you can figure that part out. It's much easier to figure out what's going to become a hit in the moment than it is to determine what's going to be a hit 5, 10, 20 years from now. After a break, My Own Worst Enemy takes on new life and embeds itself in American pop culture. Five, ten, and twenty years after my own worst enemy lit up the charts, the band saw that even if they weren't on top of the world anymore, the song still was. As the road for rock bands became tougher and Lit's brand of punky power pop became a harder sell for the mainstream, the undying appeal of my own worst enemy was like a cross between their golden ticket and a get-out-of-jail-free card. As the 2000s gave way to the 2010s and beyond, People still wanted to hear and see Lit, and like it or not, that song had a lot to do with it. I mean, that song gets played more today than it did then. So it's provided us the luxury of being much more selective in our careers, who we work with, who we write with, who produces, who mixes. We've never had to act out of desperation. We've always acted out of a place of, you know... Inspiration, passion... Like eight years ago, I don't know if it would be cool to say that I love Lit or that A Place in the Sun was the first record I ever bought. Today, it's happening more and more frequently in bands that we love and respect, and they're like proud of it. They're like, dude, that's the first fucking riff I ever learned how to play on guitar. Dude, A Place in the Sun was the first album my mom ever bought me, you know, at Kmart. And it's like, holy shit. But you wouldn't have said that to me 10 years ago. But it's like cool again now. If we would have talked to you about this song a year after it came out, we'd be like, yeah, this is like crazy. We never would have thought that we would have had a hit song. Five years after that, we'd have been like, holy shit, this song's still getting played? Like, that's insane. How awesome. 15 years later, we might be like, we feel pretty lucky that, you know, like radio still wants to play. It's gone through like these tiers of like, all right, this is getting kind of crazy. And now we're at that point, we're past the 20 year mark. And we're like, if it didn't get kicked off the billboard charts and it was still able to chart, like the song would still be showing up. Now it's to the point where like, God damn, that's a blessing. Like we're beyond lucky because, you know, we go back to the story of how this all came about. We literally are just punks from Anaheim that just wrote this song in a freaking warehouse. And it's not like reinventing the wheel or anything. 
it's just this phenomenal thing. Like, like how is it still being played? Like, I mean, but it's cool. We love that people love it. And it, it's just, it's so fucking amazing. We're still not tired of playing it. It's done nothing but good things for us. And, and honestly, like to this day, it's, uh, that moment is epic. One of the most widespread ways my own worst enemy has entered the ears of a new generation has been through the video game Rock Band. Created by Harmonix Music Systems, also the makers of Guitar Hero, Rock Band was introduced in 2007 as a vehicle for players to interact with some of their favorite songs by playing along with them virtually. Rock Band 2 came out in 2008, and one of the songs that came included with the game well, you see where this is going, right? My name is Cheryl Gaybauer. I'm the head of music for Harmonix Music Systems, Inc. As one of the tools for music discovery, Harmonix and Rock Band were definitely on the front of pushing content and new music out to a broad fan base. And yes, I was part of the decision to put my own worst enemy on the disc for Rock Band 2. <laughs> The Rock Band franchise was hugely successful. And again, it's still alive and kicking. And um, it's a $2 billion franchise. We've sold over 15 million games. My Own Worst Enemy came with the Rock Band 2 game disc. It was included on the disc soundtrack. So everyone who bought Rock Band 2 got My Own Worst Enemy. Nobody was expecting Rock Band 1 to be as massive as it was. And Rock Band 2 came right on the heels of like building this massive audience. So yes, and Rock Band 2 was also massively successful. To give you some context, some of the other songs that came with Rock Band 2 were Alive by Pearl Jam, Aqualung by Jethro Tull, Any Way You Want It by Journey, and that's just the A's. When the game sold millions of copies... They were selling My Own Worst Enemy right along with them. In terms of uh, My Own Worst Enemy, yes, it is like selling millions of singles. Like we can see today that even though the song was released 13 years ago, that it's been played over 35,000 times in the last year, which is just amazing given we have thousands of songs for people to pick from. We have new songs every week for people to choose from, to play. The other thing that we can see is that since Rock Band 4 released, almost 200,000 people have played My Own Worst Enemy. We're on Rock Band 4, which released in 2015. This song was released seven years before that. So, you know. In short, Lit made some serious dough from being in Rock Band. But they also got a whole new audience. Because the people playing the song in the game weren't just the old fans. Far from it. You saw that with the rock band Bar Nights and E3, people playing Lit that was released 10 years prior, you know, around 10 years prior to Rock Band 2 coming out. And they were playing that song, you know. And for someone who maybe was a little younger, didn't know that song, they would know that song now. They would know My Own Worst Enemy now after the game came out, even if they were maybe a little too young to know it when it came out. And so for people of all ages, they were discovering music that they were not familiar with. 
because we had fans that were like six years old and we had fans that were 65 years old. So obviously the music taste was all over the place <laughs> and they were discovering music. For their part, the band has been blown away by the effect rock band has had on their career. I'm not going to argue with any way somebody hears about us. The fact that somebody is able to play a video game and play our song, how amazing is that? My kid was like two or three at the time. I was like, who's he going to look up to? A fucking DJ? And then when Rock Band came out, it was like, I had so much fun playing, even though he kicked my ass on our own song. But I would play it with him, and I'd be like, just seeing him singing like, I'm a creep, ba ba ba. And I was like, fuck. He would have never heard the song if it wasn't for that. And then just the other day, I was reading something, Post Malone said that the reason he wanted to play music was because of fucking Rock Band. And he covered Mauer's Enemy. So you've, you've got this full circle story with this guy who's the biggest musical superstar on the planet. And that's why he picked up a fucking guitar was this video game. Like, we just felt it then. And we just knew, like, this has to be something. And it was. And it was like, just, again, stars aligning, blessed, all the things. Like, the fact that we got to be invited to that party, like, that sealed the fucking deal, I think. Having one of the world's biggest multi-platinum megastars cover the song is only part of the story when it comes to cover versions of My Own Worst Enemy. Over the years, it's been performed and recorded in almost every conceivable way. Naturally, there have been plenty of straight-ahead rock versions by bands like Get Scared, Home for the Day, and Sucker Punch. But there's also the gentle acoustic cover by Ryan Fine and Lance Allen. Please tell me The acoustic guitar instrumental version by Barracuda Sound. The piano-based tongue-in-cheek lounge version by Richard Cheese. Please tell me why the car is in the front yard and I'm The jumping, brassy swing version by Robin Adele Anderson. A cappella version by On the Rocks. It's no surprise to me, I am my own worst enemy. Cause every now and then I kick the living shit out of me. And many, many more. We've heard crazy ver- country versions, super heavy metal versions, you know, where it's dark and and then everything in between, you know. Some of our friends have covered that song, Real Big Fish. Warrant has covered it. Uh, Michelle Branch used to cover it every night in her set. I mean, there's all these different people that have covered that song. Uh, And then a bunch of country guys have done it. Thematically, this is a universal idea. It's not just teenage or early 20 guys who feel like they're their own worst enemy. Everybody does. And everybody has had 
multiple moments in their lives where they're like, Jesus, I can't even do this right, you know? And so I think one of the things that really makes songs great for covering is when there's something like that, that's gonna speak to everybody. Like we each are gonna take that and apply it to ourselves. Can we forget about the things I said when I was drunk? I didn't mean to call you that. One of the most intriguing covers of My Own Worst Enemy in recent years is a radical reinterpretation by Lex Casciato, an electronic-oriented L.A. singer-songwriter who goes by the name Little Warrior. She would have been in eighth grade when Lit's version first came out. Vibe-wise, the version she released as a single in 2018 is the polar opposite of the original. It's a slow, moody, electronic track with a dark trip-hop feel that brings out a whole different side of the song. Casciato grew up loving the song, and she added it to her list of potential covers. I was cleaning the church that I went to and they had this big sanctuary and I would put in my headphones and listen to music in vacuum. I have like a list, like a note pad that has songs that I want to cover at some point, even if I don't release them. And so I think I had just looked at my notepad at that point and lit my own worst enemy was up there. And so one night after cleaning, they have a piano on stage. So I would just sit down at the piano and play like after every shift. The cover started just sitting at the piano and like playing some chords. And I don't know if the chords I was playing reminded me of it, but then I looked up the lyrics just to make sure I had them right. And I started playing on piano this really sad, sullen version of It's no surprise to me, I am my own worst end. And I'm also kind of obsessed with having a song that is recognizable, but kind of flipping it very much on its head. So I just did, I was like, let's see if I can make this song like sad. Cause it's like, the words are very intense and deep. Like, it's no surprise to me, I am my own worst enemy. Like that's, like we've all been there. We've all felt that. And so I just wanted to make like a really sad version. And so that's kind of how it started. To her surprise, she soon discovered that Lit loved her version too. I was so surprised. I posted it. I tagged them. And you're like, they're not going to care. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is a cool cover. I'm like, this is like a, a teenage girl moment for me right now. They reposted it. What's really cool is they had, this was pre-COVID, so they had some tour footage. And they edited their, just for like a little bumper reel or something for their social media, they had edited some tour footage together and put my cover of their song behind it. And I was like, you guys are so freaking cool. Like, they're so nice. For everyone who recorded their own version of My Own Worst Enemy through the years, there are probably a hundred more playing it for crowds at bars, weddings, and every other kind of event where a rocking cover band can be found. Phil Smith. We played hundreds and hundreds of shows, um, and that's the song that I don't think has ever not been in the set list. 
it's in the set list, guaranteed every single show. It's always in the set at the point that I predict is going to be when the most possible people are there. Not too early, not too late. And right when we need to turn the volume up to 11, once we hit My Own Worst Enemy, the energy's up now. Every, every song after that has transformed. That's the song that if anybody wasn't feeling it, that's the song where they are now in. They're paying attention. And I mean, you could pretty much take any moderately high energy song and play it right after that. And if you don't give them a second to breathe and you just go right off the last note of My Own Worst Enemy into almost anything... I mean, we, we could probably play a rock version of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star right after my own worst enemy. And, and they're in. They're like, this is the coolest thing we've ever heard. We're ready to go. Probably weekly or every other week, I get a text from somebody in the U.S. at a bar and some band is playing it. And sometimes it's awesome and the crowd's going nuts. And sometimes it's some dude sitting on a stool and there's nobody there and he's just playing my own worst enemy. I've seen it all, man. I've seen I've seen people play My Own Worst Enemy better than we've played it. Like, wow, what did they do? That's awesome, you know? But we have been told a million times by people in cover bands that they will hit a lull in their cover band set and they're not nailing it with the crowd. They'll say, dude, we'll pull out the Ace of Spades. We'll pull out My Own Worst Enemy and the fucking crowd always comes to life. It's crazy. John Booker is one of the many cover band veterans who can attest to that fact. I can't think of a time where it didn't work. I would say, I mean, we played it basically every single show we've ever played. And it doesn't matter who you're playing in front of. It's the unifying song in a way, you know, it, it, it's the pop fans love it. The rock fans love it. Even when there's no band at all, people still go crazy for the song whenever it gets belted out at their local karaoke bar. My Own Worst Enemy has been a karaoke classic for as long as it's been a cover band standard. J.J. Brent, the director of entertainment at Wannabe's Karaoke in Nashville, sees it firsthand again and again. There's one thing that I've noticed over the years with My Own Worst Enemy, more so than most any other songs, Every last person from the front to the back of the room is singing that song because everybody knows every freaking word. There aren't a whole lot of songs that people know absolutely every word and sing it with vigor. You know, it's literally watching something go viral in a room and it takes over everyone. This is one of those songs. If someone chooses to sing it on stage, everyone in the room is singing along. It's an easy choice if someone's like, hey, what should I sing? Get up there and sing that, and the whole crowd will help you. And sometimes they're louder than the person on stage. They're louder than what's coming out of the system. And just like the song's video game stats in Rock Band, my own worst enemy's numbers on the karaoke scene are staggering, especially for a song that's been around for more than two decades. My own worst enemy by Lit is at number 37 for the most requested songs to sing at Wannabes for the last 12 years. Out of 87,000 some odd songs. Most bands with a surefire cash cow like My Own Worst Enemy would probably be content to either sit on their butts and let the song do the work, or maybe keep cranking out half-assed imitations for the rest of their careers. But Lit has never been big on taking the easy way out. 
Even if the direction they chose didn't lead to the biggest possible payday, they never quit exploring and maturing as musicians and songwriters. We're pushing it to the red. Next on My Own Worst Enemy, the song that started it all becomes the compass that leads the band through triumph, tragedy, and rebirth, and ultimately, to producing some of their strongest work ever. Don't get me wrong, there are times they want to kill me and I want to kill them. We've been through some shit that would have broken up most bands. The fucking reaction to the new stuff is legit. There's nothing out there that really sounds like it. We got super excited about rock and roll, about that direction again. I haven't felt this in a lot of years. My Own Worst Enemy was produced for Roundhill Music by Osiris Media. For Roundhill, Joe Calitri is president of Roundhill Records, Lucy Bartosi is the senior director of marketing, and Imani Giverts is the digital content manager. For Lit, the executive producer is Dave Rose, president of Deep South Entertainment. The members of Lit are AJ Popoff, Jeremy Popoff, Kevin Baldus, Taylor Carroll, and Alan Schellenberger in memoriam. For Osiris Media, the executive producers are Brad Stratton and Kirsten Cluthy. All interviews were conducted by Brad Stratton, and the script was written by Jim Allen. My Own Worst Enemy was edited, mixed, and narrated by Brad Stratton. To learn more about Lit and receive news and updates about their upcoming album and live appearances, please follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Lit Band Official or on their website, litband.com. Osiris.